Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Catherine McCord. She is a physically and neurodiverse woman who built a career in inclusive innovation in people operations and HR tech. So she's had some interesting and fun things happen in her career, and she's also here to talk about her identity and her life. So I'm happy to have Catherine here. Thank you so much, Catherine. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? So thank you so very much for having me. I, I'm excited to be here. It's going to be a little bit different discussion than I've had the rest of this week. So I or the last week, I guess now. I don't know what week it is. That's not a good sign, is it? Um, <laughs> but so I'm excited to kind of to kind of dive into a little bit more on the the personal side instead of just the professional. That'll be exciting. So my my background is in uh, in HR and recruiting type work, people operations, as I like to call it. I actually I accidentally invented the first ever anti-bias applicant tracking system. So I dove into technology without any sort of technology background a couple of years ago. Um, that product was really interesting and got some cool attention, like at Web Summit, things like that, uh, which was such a cool experience. That that was just going to that event was was life altering. Um, but it's and just seeing that level of innovation. But I I live and breathe in the inclusion and innovation spaces. And, um, and I tell everybody, I, my focus on my missions, which are integrity, inclusion, and innovation. And I do a lot of speaking. I recently spoke to United Nations delegates, as well as other politicians at an event about neurodiversity and sustainability. And I do a lot of work around neurodiversity and disability inclusion, very much from a curiosity perspective, as opposed to an ego perspective. So you definitely have lots of good things in the in the work world. <laughs> um, but since you're excited to talk about the personal the personal stuff, why don't we start there? What um, what sort of things are in your life that make you physically and neurodiverse? So I have I, I always talk about I have six invisible disabilities, which just means that you can't immediately see them when you look at me. Uh, some of them do have some physical characteristics, but they're not immediately obvious. Uh, and actually, by my, by my doctor keeps trying to sneak in a few more. And I was like, no, we're cutting it off at six. I've, like, I'm maxing it out. No more. This is all we're allowed. Um, and, and so I have a neurodiversity for anybody listening who does not know. It's simply a medically visible and or diagnosable difference in how the brain processes information and stimuli. And that covers everything from like traumatic brain injury and cerebral palsy, uh, all the way over to the mental health side of things, which is like uh, mental health side of things, which is like obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar, autism, uh, which autism also has uh, physical aspects as well, but autism, ADHD, all of these types of things. Everything kind of on these spectrums is, is neurodiverse. So I have several neurodiversities. The ones I talk about the most are my misophonia, which is that certain sounds make me completely malfunctioned. Um, and I've had to learn to kind of deal with that in some interesting ways. I do have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and then I also have bipolar one. And then on the physical side, the most prevalent issue that I discuss most frequently uh, is that I have uh, TIAs which are essentially many, many strokes, which uh, have developed into seizures, because why not? And so that actually changes also my neuropathway. So that is both a physical and a neurodiversity. And so you mentioned that your doctor wants to, you know, keep adding diagnoses. How were you very rude? (laughs) How were you first (laughs) diagnosed with any of these? Like, were you younger? Were certain things happening that your parents were like, we need to bring Catherine to the doctor. So my parents, my mother was the first one on record as noticing that something was different about me. And that was, I was three to four years old. She doesn't remember exactly, but three to four years old. And she came in and the way that I was playing with my toys was very particular. And I couldn't stand them uh, you know, not being a certain way. And she was like, oh, well, that's not normal. You know, <laughs> 
that's not the that's not the typical thing. But being a nurse, she recognized immediately what it was, immediately understood what was happening, and went to my dad. They discussed it. And I loved their decision. I've praised them for this countless times throughout my life on shows and my speaking, um, that they decided not to quote other me or not to make me feel bad or different about how I was. And so they just steered into it. They were like, all right, well, this is how she is. So, you know, these are the things we're going to do to accommodate her. And then this is where we're going to teach her to push her own boundaries. You know, like these are the things that can end up being unhealthy for you, or these are the things that can end up being unproductive for you. So we're going to teach you how to push your own boundaries a little bit and how to accommodate yourself and how to, you know, kind of grow past some of these things that are, that are not so helpful. And what that did was that created a really strong sense of self. And it also, uh, it also gave me the tools that I needed to truly take care of myself. Then fast forward, I got an oddly young uh, they, they couldn't officially diagnose me, but it was put as highly sus- highly suspected on my chart for several years until they could uh, technically diagnose me. And that was with the bipolar uh, at the time called manic depression. And uh, we were aware of that at around 13 years of age, which is pretty young. Um, got, but then I found a psychologist at 15 that really taught me how to chart myself and take care of myself and manage those, those things and to use use the tools that I had with the obsessive compulsive disorder and with the the mania and the bipolar to use those tools that my body was giving me as kind of a, a superpower, so to speak, you know, the, they're the frustrating parts, but then there's the good parts too. So taught me to use that. Um, and then on the medical side, the diagnosis started coming in at around, um, around 17 is when all the medical stuff that, and that's when I had my first TIA was at 17. Yeah. So I was I was a physical and neuro disaster from a very early on, <laughs> but you know, just does what it is. Right, but to, you know, have your mom kind of see it and understand it immediately, and it sounds like you really did get those accommodations and like oh, yeah. things early on that you know have have let you be able to be where you are and be able to succeed yes. and and function. Now, uh, I feel like OCD and bipolar are are words that people might know and might have at least some understanding. So would you be able to talk a little bit more about the misophonia? Because if it's like specific sounds, like, are you willing to like share about those sounds or like what that's like? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, So (laughs) it's actually, actually, first, I am going to specify the other two, because a lot of people don't understand the first two properly. So um, my particular type of bipolar is that I have uh, bipolar one, which means that I have very long highs, very long lows, and very long periods of in between where I'm at baseline, right? So I'm not erratic. I'm not, <laughs> that's not a thing. That's people use, misuse that term all the time. Um, it, and it's very chemical. And, and the way that it's been described to me by people who have had this experience is that mania is basically like you snort two giant lines of Coke and then keep doing that about every half hour for weeks at a time, like days and weeks at a time. And it never stops. It is just constant. So that's kind of the chemical equivalent that I am experiencing. I've even had doctors describe that to me that way, believe it or not. Um, so that, so it is, it is not the same thing as having a lot of energy. So I think that's important to understand. Um, an obsessive compulsive disorder is not that, oh, you have a habit or you like something a particular way. It's a compulsion and people do not understand that. So I have to do certain things, certain number of times have to have, um, I have to, you know, go through certain processes when it comes to like cleaning and, and stuff like that. So it is a compulsion. It's not something that you can say. It's, it's a, it's a very systematic thing that you have to learn to break. Um, but the misophonia, yeah, because everybody always has questions about that. Yeah, there's so many sounds. <laughs> so I hate the sound of kissing. Cannot tolerate it. Uh, breastfeeding, uh-uh. And, and don't get me wrong, ladies. I fully support breastfeeding. Love it. I support you doing it in public. Just please, God, don't do it around me. Uh, <laughs> warn me first so that I may leave. Um, fully support you. Don't mind seeing it. Not offended by that. It's just the sound. I literally just malfunction and it, and it puts me in a very like my neuro sensors just go wild in a very unpleasant way um dogs licking or any sound of smacking or or anything like that chewing 
Um, I cannot tolerate multiple sound sources at one time. So for instance, if the TV is on, there is no having like videos on the phone going. That's not a thing. That's nope. <laughs> uh, my husband puts in an earbud. If he wants to listen to his TikTok or something, he puts in an earbud because that's just not going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's certain types of sounds, um, different quality of sounds, um, I cannot tolerate like repetitive stuff that, which is funny because with OCD, I do some repetitive things. So that's kind of bizarre, uh, but repetitive sounds just nope. Mm-mm, nope. That's why I tell people like in a way it's, it's good. I didn't end up being a mom because that stage where kids go, well, why, 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 why that? No, <laughs> doesn't work. Complete malfunction. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of unusual one. So I've learned to accommodate it and how to work with it. And most people that are around me have zero clue that I have this um, until they see a situation in which it's truly overwhelming. Like when there's just something that's happened, that's just like, it's, it's something new. It's something I'm not used to having to accommodate and it's something different, but yeah, usually people have no idea. And so have you had any like more recent experiences of like something new that all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is like a new sound. Like the first time, say, like you experienced someone breastfeeding near you. Like has anything like that happened more recently? Um, Actually, <laughs> this, the, this wasn't one sound, but it was just an overwhelming experience of way too many triggers all at once. I was at a restaurant And on one side, I had someone who did not know how to chew properly and just like mouth wide open, (laughs) which is gross to a lot of people, right? But it's just the sound of it even was just, I could hear it. And and then behind me, a woman starts breastfeeding her child. And then (laughs) on top of that, there was someone somewhere that kept clanking their fork on their plate very loudly over and over again. And it was just, it was so extra and it was just way too much. Um, and so the way that I soothed that was you know, first I took like a few deep breaths and I was like, okay, I'm either going to have to leave or one of these sounds has got to go. And so like, cause I could feel like I could manage it if it's just two, but I like the three is not going to work. So I was like, all right, what can I do? Like, like what is the most manageable situation here for me? Um, Because I just got my food. Like if I was anywhere close to being done, I literally would have just gotten a doggy bag packed up and and headed out or had my friends do it. And I would have just stepped outside. But I turned around. It was so sweet. The woman, she was sitting directly behind me. It was a booth and she was directly behind me that was breastfeeding. And I turned around to her and I said, I'm about to say something to you. And I want you to know that I'm fully aware that this is my problem. (laughs) She goes, she was making this face. Like she had this face like, oh, you're one of these people that hates public breastfeeding. And I was like, I fully support what you're doing. I think that breastfeeding is natural. This is beautiful. Thank you so much. I have a condition called misophonia. This is what's happening for me right now. Would you mind please just switching to the other side of the booth where I can't hear the sound? And she was so sweet and gave so much grace that she was like, oh, thank you. I said, I will buy like your next, like your dessert or whatever it is. I was like, I am so sorry. And she was like, oh no, thank you. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. Thank you for telling me you were experiencing that. Like we had kind of a connecting moment (laughs) and it was so sweet. Um, And that was one of the few times I've, I've actually asked somebody to like really like that I don't know to stop doing something, but it was like, okay, I'm literally not going to get to eat my food. Like something, someone's got to help me out here. But I think, you know, when you come at it and you just tell people, you explain to people what your need is. Um, it's the same thing with my seizure activity. I've had to explain to certain people, okay, what you're doing right now is not helpful for me because I'm in a, I, I'm having a seizure day and this could cause a seizure. Please stop doing this. Um, when you're when you just tell people what you need, they're usually really great about going. Okay, cool. Like I got you. <laughs> it's all right. Like, and if you own the responsibility of, okay, I realize that this is just me, but I need some help on this, please. People are really great about it, actually. That's great to hear. I feel like there's a <laughs> lot of negativity out in the world that people, there you is. know, I'm sure, you know, this woman you spoke with, like the immediate reaction was that kind of like, oh no, like this isn't going to go well, but mm-hmm. then for it to be. Oh, you could see it on her face. It was so bad. <laughs> it's like, no, no, it's okay. 
Um, and, and actually, before you started giving that example, I was curious to like being in restaurants. Are there situations that like you specifically won't put yourself in because you know there's a higher risk? No. Absolutely not. No. I, I do not limit myself in terms – now, only for seizure days. Uh, if I'm going to be having seizures, that's a completely different thing. Uh, that's because that's a safety issue. And that is the only time that my misophonia has been that bad in a restaurant. It was a, just a weird combination of things like that. Like why would these three things ever be happening and happening in this small proximity? Um, that is literally the one and only time to my re- recollection that that's ever happened. Um, that it was that bad. Usually I can just accommodate myself. I do grounding exercises. It's perfectly fine. Um, I have even like little tools that I carry with me that can help with the grounding. Um, and so I do stuff like that. It's the same thing with the obsessive compulsive disorder because you don't want to be a weirdo in public, right? Like <laughs> compulsively cleaning everything. That's a weird thing to do. Um, and so I can logic myself through that and go, okay, they've cleaned it. They have the proper you know, tools back there. Everything's okay. And then I do that and some grounding and I'm fine. So no, I don't, I do not limit my activity. I do not stop myself from enjoying life. I've just learned to accommodate myself in those situations. And to hear that you've learned all these like self-soothing ways to accommodate yourself, like that is so just like wonderful to hear that you are like, you've got a lot going on um, to know that it's going so well. You've mentioned a couple of times kind of like your seizure days. So how do you know that you're going to have a day where there's like potential for seizures? Oh, I feel it. Um, And this is not the experience of everyone, of course, Um, but because of the specific reason that I have seizures. Um, I can feel my nerves behaving differently. One of the main key factors is that uh, this kind of tendon area and muscle area will start having unusual tension and even some pain and discomfort, but only in very specific spots, especially right here. This is for some reason, this little spot here is, and actually this was explained to me by a chiropractor, uh, that, that right there is where some of the nerves feed into my spine. And so on a day when it's over keyed up, it makes perfect sense that I would feel extra receptors right here. Um, so I'm aware, okay, this is going to be a seizure day. I'll even start having little face ticks before I have full on seizures. Um, and so I just know like today I cannot drive, you know, today I'm going to have to be off camera that's the thing, or at least not look at the camera because that, that causes problems. Um, so you, I physically feel it also. Um, and this is interesting to me. My husband can see that they're about to come before I can. So he'll notice a difference in how my face moves and such. And he'll say, you need to sit down my, and then of course I have a, I have a dog that will come up and like, he'll tap on me like, Hey mama, if I'm not already, if I'm sitting, he's fine. And he just stays where he is. But if I'm standing, he's like, Hey, Hey lady, <laughs> you should go sit down over there. Um, but I feel them coming to you. I've never been surprised by a seizure, except for the first one ever like that. <laughs> that was, that was a big shock, but I'm not surprised by them. It's just part of it. So I literally physically feel it in here and I'll feel it in my face too. I'll feel tingling in my, on the left side of my face. It's always the left side. I have focal seizures. So for anybody listening, I have focal seizures, not grand balls. So the seizures are on one side of my face. I am fully conscious. I just can't really respond to you effectively, but I know what's going on. I'm aware of what's going on. I do not lose time. Um, I just put what I call my shake, rattle, and roll on one side of my body. <laughs> oh gosh, that is great. Now, is your dog like a medical alert dog or just a dog who has happened to learn about your seizures just happened to be super in tune with me. Um, so he is technically registered as a service dog. Um, but he, but it was just completely natural behavior that he had that was, and he also protects me. In fact, we had, we had to teach him that he does not need to protect me from my husband when I'm having a seizure because (laughs) that gets problematic. Um, but, but when I'm in public and I have him, that's very helpful because he's like, and he's very gentle about it, but he just lets people know, no, thank you. Stay over there. <laughs> like this is mommy is okay. Like just, just you go over there. Um, but yeah, it's, it works out. But I'm, I'm not really alone in public uh, when, when I have seizures. I, I, since I know it's coming and I know it's a possibility, I always take people with me when I'm going to be in public on those days. Yeah. Part of accommodating. Right. 
Now, you explained earlier um, more in detail about OCD and bipolar one because they are conditions that people might misconstrue. I'm curious um, your personal opinion um, with OCD when people talk about like, oh, I have OCD tendencies or oh, I'm so OCD about this. And like, it's not actually a compulsion. It's not anything diagnosed. Where do you fall on that? It's, I mean... It's irritating, but I also know that they don't mean it as rude and that it's based from not understanding, not trying to belittle my experience. You know what I mean? I I know it's not that they're trying to be rude or ugly. So I don't, most of the time I don't even correct people. I'm just like, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, and, and, um, and part of it too is the other side of that is, you know, like, Hollywood likes to exaggerate certain conditions, right? So some people just, that's their only exposure to it. And what people don't realize is that, yes, you know that that's pretend, but if that's the only information that your brain gets about a certain condition, then that's going to be how you're how you picture it. it's like with the bipolar people will think oh that you could be dangerous oh you know you're erratic well that's how the media portrayed it there's there's anybody who knows anything about these conditions knows that's not at all correct, right? But it's just that's how it's portrayed and that's the only information that they have. So to correct that, one thing I do tell people, and even when they make comments like that, is you know, whenever you encounter a new diagnosis, please do 60 to 90 seconds of Google research on it and only look at like, you know, medical type descriptions, things like that, so that your mind will get correct information before you. You start to see my sin. And even if you watch something on a screen where you know that's fake, still do that because that way your brain doesn't get a negative bias. Because if that's all the information it has, that's all it has to work with. Yes. Now, are there good examples in Hollywood that you've encountered for any of your diagnoses? Oh, Lord. Um, or are these ones that are like closer to correct? Because again, like we know it's fictitious. I'm trying to think. Like, there, I feel like there probably are, and they're probably not going to come to my brain since you asked me that. Um, there's, I, there, there was a show, and I, oh, God, I cannot think of the name of it, but it was um, Anne Hathaway played a woman who had bipolar. And that, for not my journey, but that was a more realistic portrayal. Um, and there's a great epic scene between she and her boss where her bro- boss shows her a lot of empathy. Um, and I only watched a couple of episodes because I'd been told about this. And that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good portrayal. Um, actually, even though it was an extreme example, as good as it, as good as it gets, mm-hmm. the way that Jack Nicholson was and in that movie um, was actually pretty accurate. It's just that was a very extreme example of it because most people don't have that broad of a scope of compulsions, um, but that was actually pretty accurate. Um, but yeah, it's it, most most like shows and movies don't either don't portray it at all or just don't do it very well. Um, one that irritated me because it was almost right, but then took such a hard left to become epically wrong was in Shameless. Um, so Ian is uh and the mother both are diagnosed with bipolar and uh they they got some aspects beautifully right (laughs) um but then just just like it went into like these weird like like weird aspects that had nothing to do with reality so i was like you almost got it right and then just took such a hard left and (laughs) but it's okay because it's tv like i wasn't offended by it but it was just like oh darn i thought we were gonna get it right this time but yeah, that's okay. It's Hollywood. What are you going to do? Yeah. And if you have that, <laughs> it's Hollywood, what are you going to do sort of lens on it? I think that's, that's important, you know, because yeah. as you were saying, sometimes that might be somebody's only experience with it, but anything you're encountering in media, you know, has to be taken with a bit of grain of salt. Yeah. Like obviously people that have DID or dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personalities. Very clearly, they don't grow giant muscles, start climbing walls and eating people like in the movie Split. But like, <laughs> like very clearly, that does not happen. But when people only see that in movies like Psycho, there is... And, and I love... By the way, I, I love both of those movies. Um, 
but so this is not a knock on, on these films. Um, it does create an inaccurate picture uh, and sometimes a scary picture. And then that creates danger for those people with that diagnosis. So we, but I don't put that on Hollywood because it's obviously fiction. I put that on society that we need to use our brains more and educate our brains more so that we don't get these silly biases in them. Definitely. Now switching gears a little bit because I do think you have a fascinating work history and the things you have done and what you're passionate about. Can you share a little bit about this anti-bias applicant tracking system that you created and sort of how you got into that work and just sort of fell into tech? Yeah. Yeah. I literally, it was not intentional. I, I came up with it at 4.30 in the morning driving to the airport. <laughs> and so I had no sleep. I was very tired and I've worked in uh, HR for many, many years. And, and so the, the ATS, the applicant tracking system is a CRM or a way to track applicants um, for HR that was created in answer to the giant job boards like Monster, ZipRecruiter, Career Builder, all of those. And so it was a way to track all these you know masses of applicants that would come in. And they haven't really evolved since the 90s when they were originally created, which is so weird. Like there's, there's some cooler technology. They're more user-friendly. Uh, you know, you can put templates in now, stuff like that. But the, the true design and the way that we're taking in applications in general has not changed in, in decades. And in fact, we're still using resumes, which just still blows my mind, but uh, which are, have been proven ineffective time and time again. So I was like, okay, I'm getting tired of this and I'm tired of my clients being stuck on details that don't matter. Uh, this is really frustrating, you know? And so I'm driving to the airport at four 30 in the morning and it just popped into my head. I can't tell you what I was thinking before that because again, early in the morning, but I was probably kind of halfway zoned out and I just trying to you know focus on the road and it just popped into my head and I could just see it. And I have 3d model thinking. That's kind of one of my, kind of superpowers is I can just see things as they ought to be. That's what made me really good at event designing um, back in the day. And so um, I could just see it. And I was like, I know how to fix this. I know how to fix this problem. Reached out to somebody I know who can code and the rest is history. Um, but I got into it and, and it needed to be because the way that we have people apply, again, is not effective just from the ground up. It's horribly bias creating, um, even down to, you know, people focusing on names, people focusing on colors on resumes, people focusing on things that don't matter, like job titles. Job titles don't matter. In fact, most job titles have very little to do with what you actually do for a living, right? Like I love to use Bank of America as, as an example on this because they'll pe call people vice presidents who have no, no reports or anything like, and have no executive function whatsoever. So titles have nothing to do with anything, yet people focus on them. Dates of employment, who cares? Maybe tenure, you know, you can make an argument for, you know, length of time at a job, but dates of employment can be problematic because what if, you know, you took time off to take care of a sick loved one? Well, you should not be discriminated against for that. What if you're a mother who had a child and you took some time off to spend time with your baby? You should not be discriminated against for that. So you know, these types of things don't matter. So I created a system that was better for that and also better for the neurodiverse community who who historically um, struggle with the way that questions are asked and not because there's anything wrong with them, but because the information's not being presented in a way that's constructive for them. And everybody processes differently. So present things in a way that's constructive for them and it works. And so how does this ATS work in in terms of like, an applicant putting their information in or, and, or like a recruiter then seeing the information in an anti-biased way. Right. So it's, um, number one, again, there's no resumes at all. Although you can parse from like LinkedIn or, or resume, well, LinkedIn, which we've been trying to get with, they're, they're historically very difficult to get with, but, uh, but like you could use a profile, that kind of thing and, and upload it to, to fill in some of the information, but there in terms of what the hiring company sees, they do not see your name. They do not see your email. They do not see your phone number, location, anything like that. None of your demographic information. All of that is sent in a completely anonymous survey separately. Um, and it's known to the candidate that that is in no way or shape or form tied to their application. Um, so it's completely anonymous. 
um, and also a more robust <laughs> diversity survey than most than any other company I've seen out there, uh, except for inclusively, they do a good job. Um, so that's so none of that stuff is visible. Um, it's it's designed to to highlight how the candidate fits into the role to which they're applying. So instead of just oh here's what I did at my last job, it's what are the relevant projects that you did, the accomplishments that you had, and then any other information that you want to tell us, right? Um, so it's designed specifically to set them up for success in the application process. Uh, there's no dates of employment, but there is an average tenure calculator uh, so that you put in, you know, how long you were at your past jobs and it spits out, this is how long they say at their past jobs. Um, there's, you know, and it's just, it's really designed for success and just the flow of it is, is more friendly to candidates as well. But on the hiring team, all they're seeing is what actually matters in the order that it actually matters to them. And it gives them a more accurate breakdown. And then the, the company requests the candidate to unlock their profile. Um, and then the candidate can say, yes, I want, I feel comfortable moving forward or no, I don't. If they say yes, they hit unlock. Then the company can see their phone number, name, all of this. Um, and that's at the time of interview invitation. Um, so they, they've already passed through the application. They already know that they want to be, uh, that the company is going to interview them. Um, and then they, but the company can communicate with the candidate while it's still the locked. They can message back and forth, but it's all anonymous. It's, they cannot see the person's name or email or anything like that. Um, and then we also built in a diversity showcase, which is the first of its kind as well on an applicant tracking system where that same anonymous survey uh, that goes through the the 14 basic types of very broad categories of diversity. So it just asks, like, are you racially diverse? Are you, you know, gender diverse? Are you sex diverse? Are you military diverse? You know, all these different things, uh, socioeconomic. Um, and it, it creates this beautiful kind of uh, visual image that candidates from the job description can click a button and see your company diversity makeup as a whole at the executive level, all of this, it's that they can see, okay, is this a company that really does care about inclusion? And will I be welcome? And so then is this system something that's like being used widely or growing and or like, are you at a company that's using it? Just, well, we use it at my company, obviously. <laughs> I designed it, so. um, I, there are a few clients along the way. Um, we've now decided actually where we started getting bigger interest was at the enterprise level. And that always takes like a year or two to start. So when we, by the time we figured out to make that pivot, now we have people that are like at the, we have some big hospitals and such that are in the works for this, but it's just, it takes forever to build those kind of things out, um, on the enterprise side. Uh, but I do have like some, some uh, recruiters that use it, you know, like one-off, you know, uh, recruiters that use it, stuff like that. And it's, it's done pretty well. It's, and it's worked highly effectively, but I have also come to realize that, you know, just like with any other innovation, companies are scared of the changes that that brings, right? Because what I, and I've even had people say this to me, that's like, oh, okay, so, but then my interview process has to change. And by this and that, I'm like, yeah, well, it should anyway. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it will, but you know, that's, you know, this is what it is. Um, so it's been, it's been really interesting. It's gotten excellent reception, like in the DEI community, the HR, the tech community loves it. Um, we've got, we've gone really, really well around techies. Um, but it's funny because like the big corporations and all, uh, the really, uh, some of the, some of the hospitals and all that, that like it, love it for all the right reasons. Um, and then there are the ones that are like scared of it, which is funny. So we've, we've had an interesting journey. <laughs> we've had an interesting journey of getting some clients, then trying to get bigger clients and now pivoting and, and all of this, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, it brings <laughs> a lot of truths to the light. You know, if you're able to see company makeup and executive makeup, and you know that you have a diversity problem, especially in your executive suite, now that's going to be out in public, but it, it should be. And if you're saying like, we're using this system because we know that this is anti-bias, yeah. we want to, we want to fix it. Yes. Then it's yeah. like, then you know, the people who are putting themselves up for application, you know, they know that that's what they're getting into. And it's not all of a sudden they show up on their first day and nobody looks like them um, because they happen right. to have, you know, they <laughs> built the um, 
interview panel to be more diverse, but that might not be accurate to company. Right. Oh, yeah. And I've seen that time and again, time and again. Um, And then another one, too, um, that I think is really important, and this is part of the education that we share with people as we talk about the product, is building in standard accommodations, because that's part of what we did, right, with this. We built in standard accommodations that are just part of it. We partnered with UserWay. And so there is a little button that when you go to, uh, that has a, a, a human on it, you click on it, and it brings up different diagnoses and different needs. And so people can go, okay, I have vision impairment, click. Now the the whole software looks different for you. Or I have dyslexia, and then, you know, it's it's designed to, to help you out. Um, and so building in accessibility, designing for accessibility and inclusion um, is something that we teach very much and making accommodation standard options. And that's, that's a difficult one, right? Like, cause, cause people aren't used to that, but it's actually very easy to do once you start doing it. But that mind shift that people have to have of, oh, I need to actually change how I'm functioning. Like this is not working. That's very jarring. And that's where you get that ego response a lot of times from people yeah. of, I can't be this wrong or I can't. And, and even people that want to be inclusive, it like breaks their brain basically that what they're doing is not inclusive. And it, and so they, the ego mechanism that we all have that's, that's built into us starts throwing up these defenses of why they're right and why what they're doing is okay. Right. And so I've now started whenever I pitch anything I do, whether it's my classes, my consulting, my speaking, whatever it is, starting with the curiosity response and engaging that and saying, okay, ask me questions you know, this type of thing and getting them to, to respond in curiosity, not ego, because it's a natural thing to do, but it's not productive. And so then because this system is at your job and you are holding a job, you're doing speaking engagement, what does, you know, a typical week look like for you? And like, what sort of, like, <laughs> has your job changed since you built this system? Because it sounds like there's a lot going on. Well, I consult, right? So so I'm my product, which is kind of nice. And well, the people that work for me slash with me as well. Um, so I, I pivot my day. So I do, my week actually has an interesting breakdown. So like Monday is a lot of setting up the week, um, getting the social media content done, getting marketing set up, um, you know, kind of going through, through that whole bit. Um, and then you have you know, this throughout the week, I have a combination of taking care of my clients, having the speaking engagements, traveling, which happens all the time, um, and just kind of balancing it. And then as you experienced when we first started engaging, I also set very hard start and stop times for myself, right? And people are like, how, how do you do this? Like, how do you have a speaking, an international speaking career? You're always podcasting, you know, you still consult and you develop this. And I said, and oh, and I'm the the president of the board of a an international neurodiversity movement, the Octopus Movement. Um, I'm not the founder, but I'm the president of the board. Um, and I'm like, well, actually, the OCD and mania help with that, believe it or not, because when I get manic, I can just work, you know, at three times the uh, the speed of of other humans. Um, and then I have uh, with the OCD, I'm so hyper organized that there's not a wasted moment in my day. And so that, that really helped, right? Like be, having that mentality and using the tools around me that I was taught to use to accommodate myself, helped me to hyper-organize myself. Um, and so I just, I don't have the waste that other people do, you know, I, I just don't. And so it, it condenses very well. And so my, my days look erratic if you just hear about them or just see them on the calendar, but it's actually very meticulously organized. And I even, even down to at these times of day, I'm better at this. So this is when I do that. You know, and so everything is very well charted. Everything is very well mapped and that's it. That's the key. And I still work. I probably only actually work about anywhere from 35 to 45 hours a week of actual work, like not counting lunch breaks, not counting, you know, random chit chats with people, whatever, like 35 to 45 hours a week of actual work typically is, is where I fall. And so you did mention earlier that you have a husband, you don't have kids, uh, so what has, you know, kind of bringing him into your life and with, you know, 
the manic, the everything you've got going on, your strong boundaries. How is it like cohabitating with somebody? Oh, and it's real fun too, because he's on the autism spectrum. So we, (laughs) yay. (laughs) So, you know, lots of neurodiversity at our house. Um, And, you know, it's actually been interesting because we've, we've learned in a very different way. And, and, it was interesting too, because when I met him, he had not gotten his diagnosis yet. Right. So he didn't know, like we knew, like he knew himself and how he was, but he didn't really know why at first. Right. So, but there are aspects of me that are complementary to his diagnosis. Like he can relate to the misophonia because people on the spectrum tend to have similar types of types of things, uh, manifestations. Um, my OCD works beautifully with his autism. Like that's just like that real hyper scheduled thing that I have to do to accommodate myself works super well for him. Um, the repetitiveness thing I have to do, he can relate to it so we can understand each other um, from that perspective. However, the mania <laughs> does not sit so well, <laughs> you know, that hyper, hyper energy um, is the best way. I That's the most G rated way I can explain it. Um, it's very intense. It's very, um, I, you know, I, I'm all over the place. I'm extra chatty, which is hard for him because that's extra sensory input. Um, I'm very, I'll fixate on my projects. And I like, I, it's like, it's, I tell people I'm like my pit bull at that point. Like if I bite into it, it's not, I'm not letting go. Right. <laughs> like that's just, that's just it. You know, I've gotten my toy. I'm going to keep gnawing on it until the problem is solved. I'll go down a rabbit hole. I don't sleep. Um, I'll get up and work at crazy hours or, you know, be on uh, LinkedIn at crazy hours of the morning because I'm, I'm not sleeping anyway. So I might as well be productive. Um, and I prefer to work when I'm like that because it actually is more productive than other things I can be doing. Um, and he has to, he, he is a big part of curbing some of the negative habits that come with the mania. Um, and he chose to take on that role. Um, and we, we've come up with certain security measures, some of which are 100% on me, some of which are the two of us sharing, uh, the responsibility. And uh, like, for instance, with my spending can get bonkers. So he has to call me out like quick when he sees it and and he'll step in and offer to pay for things or handle things that normally I would handle because he's like okay we don't want you on any kind of shopping side or anything <laughs> like not a productive thing um so we you know, we've we have those little things in place so it's just communication and setting boundaries and we're not perfect at it but we have developed really good communication about what goes on with us in terms of our mental health, our physical health, and our neurodiversities. And just having that very honest communication about what we're experiencing. But yeah, it is it is funny. Um, it, it is really funny. And to hear him describe to other people what I'm like is really like in, in an intimate way is very funny uh, to hear that other, that other perspective. Um, but it's you know, it, it's, I don't think it's any more challenging than any other relationship, but you just have to communicate. But I will tell you one thing I have determined over the years and, and talking to other people the way that I do in my speaking and all that, and the way that people communicate with me is I've learned that there are so many relationships out there that end that don't need to. Um, and it's because people go into a relationship with the idea that their experience is the experience and their mentality is the mentality and they have an ego-based response to other humans. And what I mean by that, and, and I had to check myself. So this is coming from a very personal lesson too of, you know, we're taught this is what somebody else should be doing. This is how somebody else should speak to you. This is how somebody else should do this and that. Well, based on what? based on us, based on that person that said that to us, based on, that has nothing to do with reality, nothing at all. Um, now, there, there are general things like being generally respectful and obviously your physical safety matters, right? Like there's, there's some very blanket things, but how specific we get with that is unreal. And so like for one of my favorite stories to tell on this is that there was a time, like one day my husband was very busy working and he was in the middle of something 
and I was manic. And when I'm manic, occasionally I do some kind of bizarre, make some kind of bizarre choices. So I was like, okay. So I go in there to him and I'm like, okay, this, these are the things I'm doing today. Um, what do you think about this outfit for, for what I'm doing today? And he comes in because I had kind of a bizarre day. Like it was like I was speaking at one thing that I was helping move furniture. Like it was the most bizarre day. And and he goes, he, t- he turns to me and just one second goes, it's stupid. And then he keeps <laughs> and like most people be like, well, that was so rude. But I go, okay, okay, why? I said, real quick, I know you're busy, but real quick, can you explain to me why so that I can fix it the best way? And he goes, <sighs> this big exhale and he goes and he starts telling me all the reasons that the outfit I'm wearing is completely impractical for the day and how it will actually cause me problems and so I was like okay and what he was saying was it's a it's a stupid choice like he's not saying the dress is bad he liked the dress he's not saying I am stupid he's just saying it but it was his quick response because he was so busy and he was just trying to tell me very quickly um and for, and they're actually the real reason I pressed him for more information was because my initial response was hurt feelings. And I was like, but I know that's not right. So let me get the rest of the information, <laughs> fix that, fix that initial emotional response. Um, but that's just a good example of, he was not being rude to me. He was trying, he was trying to help me. He was answering my questions. He was giving me good information. Um, and so you just have to, to kind of drop some of these expectations of people. You know, I have a, my best friend has ADHD and we constantly communicate with each other about, um, and she's had some trauma in her past. And so we constantly communicate about how certain words can, you know, affect one or the other of us, like one or the other of us or what one or the other of us needs. And we constantly talk about that and readjust and there's no offense. There's no ego. There's no, it's just, this is what I need. Okay, cool. Let's do that. And then we keep on rocking and we have that kind of security with one another to be able to say that didn't work for me. What you're doing doesn't work for me, but let's figure out a compromise because maybe that's also how you need it. So just that communication level and realizing that the way we like things isn't the only way, which is again, a natural thing for humans, right? Like that's the most natural thing in the world, but we have to break that. And I see so many friendships that end work relationships that end, um, and romantic relationships at end that really didn't need to. They just needed to learn to talk to each other more. Yes, the open and honest communication is so important. And in the examples you shared, like it's it's applicable to anyone and everyone in, in various situations. Right. right, yeah. Now, before I start <laughs> to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? <sighs> you know, a while back, um, you know, I said going to that big tech convention was very life altering for me. And it wasn't just because of all the cool innovations and getting to go to Portugal for the first time, a place that I'm now completely 100% obsessed with. Um, it's that I had an interesting experience the first time I went, I was there by myself. I was in a different country during COVID by myself. Um, and I had, I woke up the morning of my speech. I was supposed to get up on stage and present my, my product and give a speech. And I woke up, I had two seizures and I forgot everything. And I reached out to them again, you know, just letting people know what's going on. They were beautifully accommodating. And I wrote out a new speech and well, not completely new. I had notes for the other one. So I just filled in the blanks. I completed it, practiced it, got up on stage and gave my speech. But before I did, I let the audience know what was happening and why I was using notes. And when I did that, I got a huge response and people approached me for the next two days because it was you know multiple day event. They would come and find me and talk about how impactful that moment was for them and what that meant for them. And it made me realize that people need that kind of connection and permission and psychological safety and everything, no matter if it's personal, professional, education, whatever it is that you're doing. And so what I would say is take that idea 
Find the ability to be vulnerable, which trust me, it was not natural for me at all. Find the ability to be that vulnerable. Tell other people what you actually need. Tell other people what's actually going on with you and set them up for success as well as yourself. And believe me, believe me, it will completely change all of your relationships for the better. It will make you more successful and it will make you a happier and healthier person. And then respond in curiosity, not ego to other humans. You won't believe how much it'll change your life in all the right ways. I appreciate you sharing that story. I do think it is very powerful and it's, it is a very good message for people to hear. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you, yes, oh I did forget to tell you that at the beginning. I thought about it like halfway <laughs> through the episode and I'm like, I didn't tell her about the random question. It's okay. That there makes it more random. <laughs> uh, so my question for you today is who inspires you? <laughs> Um, (laughs) I, oh gosh, who does inspire me? You know what? Actually, I would say one of the people from whom I draw the greatest inspiration is a lovely, lovely human named Celia Daniels, whom you make, you can find on LinkedIn. And if you want a direct introduction, please reach out to me. I'm happy to do it. And she has the most beautiful and peaceful outlook on life and approach to inclusion work that I've ever seen. And to watch someone who has had the traumatic experience and the insane just scenarios that have happened with her throughout her life. um, And then to have that beautiful kind response is extremely inspirational to me and somebody with that kind of strength and that can walk every day into situations. Um, she is, she is a, a trans, a trans woman can walk into church every Sunday with her wife and kids and get all kinds of, you know, looks and, um, and can face every day with all the hate coming at her with nothing but smiles for people. That is truly inspirational to me because I am not that nice. <laughs> I am not like at all. I am the human equivalent of grumpy cat. So like that, that really inspires me. (laughs) All right. That brings this episode to a close. So if you would like to connect with Catherine, her LinkedIn will be in the description along with her speaking site. So if you want to check out some of the good information she's doing with all of her speaking, that website will be there along with her LinkedIn. And if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description. That brings you to all of our social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. If you want to go follow those pages, it also of course brings you to all of our past episodes, resources, and all the good information. So feel free to check all of that out. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. And if you would like to be a guest on the show and share your story, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. So thank you so much, Catherine, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. Be great, everybody.